Well, like I was just saying in my prayer, um, we're going to be looking at James 5 this morning, and we're going to be actually finishing up the book. We're going to be looking at uh, James 5, verses 13 through 20. So you can actually turn there right now if you, if you want to get ready. Um, I am so happy to get to tell you guys that next week, um, Chet is going to be starting back into Hebrews. So he started that sermon series months ago, and he's going to be returning to that starting next Sunday. But like I said, this Sunday, we're going to be concluding James. And so that's what our focus for this morning is going to be. Before we actually look at what he said, though, um, what James finishes up with saying, take a second to stop and just consider how difficult it probably was for James to write um, the conclusion to his letter here. These were probably his last words to a vast majority of the people who were reading them. And he probably knew that that was going to be the case. I mean, think about the persecution that was going on in the church at the time. Many Christians and even some of the apostles had already been martyred by this point in time when he was writing the letter. And don't forget the reason that this letter existed in the first place. He says it right at the beginning. James was writing this to his old church that was scattered abroad because of persecution. Many of the Jewish Christians that were living in Jerusalem originally had to flee the city because of risk of injury or death. Those are the people he was writing to. He didn't know himself when his own death could come. It could come at any moment. So with that mindset, just think about this for yourself. If you are thinking that way, these are probably going to be my last words to these people that I cherish, that I love, that I delight in. How are you going to conclude this letter? What is the last thing that you want to leave these people with? What is the last bit of wisdom that you want to share with them? What words are good enough to do that? Well, as we'll see in James 5, those words that he chooses to end with are a call to prayer. And that, if, if you think about it, if you look at James as a whole, he's actually mirroring how he started the letter off. He's wrapping up by returning to where he began. Think back to James 1. Um, you can even turn there in your, in your Bibles if you would like to. But James starts off by calling the Christians to persevere, to endure with joy the trials they were facing. He says this in James 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." And then what does he say in verse 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So James starts his letter by a call for perseverance, and then he follows that immediately with a reminder to pray. That's because he knows that the prayer is the fuel. The prayer will help them in their perseverance. And again, he's mirroring, mirroring that here at the very end of the letter. He's calling their attention back to that. That should tell us something about how important that idea is to him. So with that said, let's look at our passage this morning. Turn to James 5, verses 13 through 20, if you haven't turned there already. Um, if you have one of the Black Pew Bibles, that's page uh, 1013. Um, but again, 
with that seriousness and significance in mind, follow along with me as I read um, these verses. So James says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In his book, Prayer, that's the title of the book, Tim Keller um, shares an illustration right at the beginning of the book. He shares an illustration that his wife, Kathy, um, used with him that really changed his life. Um, she had just asked him if they could make, a pri- make it a priority in their own lives together to pray together every single night. They were going through a lot of trials um, in their life at that point in time, and she was asking him, can we just pray together every single night? Um, and that, that task seemed kind of daunting to him, but she gave this illustration to communicate her feelings about the importance of that. She said this, imagine you were diagnosed with a, such a lethal condition that your doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never, you would never miss taking it. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all that we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. And then again, um, Tim Keller goes on to say um, in the book how impactful that was for him. So let me ask you this. How about you? When you listen to that, when you reflect on that, do you think that's good? Does that convict you of the necessity of prayer in your own life? Or do maybe you think that maybe she's just going a little bit overboard? Maybe she's exaggerating a little bit. Are you thinking that maybe that was true for her because their circumstances were just so chaotic and tough, but maybe your life is calm right now, so you don't need that as much? Friends, we should think exactly the same way that Kathy Keller thought when she said that. We need prayer desperately. It's not just helpful. It's necessary Unfortunately, though, we oftentimes don't see it that way. And James knew that. It was an an issue in his day just like it is in ours. And that's why he wanted to focus on it at the very end. That's why he comes back to where he started. 
We cannot risk neglecting prayer either individually or corporately as a church. Throughout his letter, James gave us a lot of different commands to follow and a lot of things that he warned us to avoid. Um, This is one of the most practical books of the Bible that you'll see. He's, He's listing off thing after thing that we need to make sure we do or not do. Well, we will not be able to do those things. We will not be able to follow and obey if prayer isn't a normal and daily part of the rhythm of our lives. We will not persevere to the end without it. We need to be doing it for ourselves and for each other. Pray, for your prayers of faith will heal and save others. Now, that's a bit of a controversial statement that requires some elaboration, which we'll see as we continue, but that is James' main idea in this passage in verses 13 through 20. That's his proposition. Pray for your prayers of faith will heal and save others. To show us that, James tells us a couple things about prayer. So that's how we're gonna spend our time together. We're gonna look at three things. First, we're gonna look at occasions for prayer. In other words, when should we do it? Then, second, we're gonna look at what faith in prayer is. What does it mean to pray a prayer of faith as he talks about in the verses? And finally, we'll see the power of prayer. What does prayer actually accomplish? Is it effective? What are we actually doing with it? That's how we're going to make our way through this passage. So first, starting off, occasions for prayer. When is the right time to do it? Now, James doesn't take long to answer that question for us. His answer, he gives us right off the bat, is at all times. Be praying always. Look with me again at verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So if you're suffering, if you're struggling, if you're dealing with hardship, you should be praying. On the flip side, if things are going well, if you're happy and joyful, if you have all that you need, you should also be praying. Now I know that the end of the verse doesn't say pray specifically. It's a sing praise. But if you don't think praising God is prayer, then you misunderstand what prayer is. Prayer is not just asking God for things. That's just one form of prayer that we can take. That's called petition. But prayer looks many other ways as well. Prayer prayer is any and all forms of communication that we have with God. When we thank God for something, that is prayer. When we are singing worship songs together, like we've already done this morning and we'll do at the end, that's prayer to God. That's corporate prayer. When we confess our sins to him, that's also prayer. When we're thinking about who he is and trying to learn from him from scripture as we meditate and study through it, that's meditative prayer also. So again, all of that is to say, when you are singing praises to God, you are praying. James wants us to be praying at all times. Like Paul says, he wants us to pray without ceasing. But if you're like me, that begs a question in your mind. How do we do that? What does that even look like? I mean, we know that we're not called to be just monks or nuns where we just withdraw from the world and spend all of our time in Bible study and meditation. That's not what Scripture calls us to. 
We've got meals to cook, kids to wrangle, reports to write, homework to do, meetings to attend. We have a never-ending list of things to do in our lives. So what does praying during all of those things look like? Tacking it on to our to-do list like everything else can't be the answer. And it's not. James, what he is arguing for here is a mindset of God consciousness. So many of us go about our day-to-day lives forgetting that God is there with us at all times. He isn't distant and aloof. He is near and present. We live quorum Deo. That's a term that means before the face of God. But we forget that, and so we aren't prayerful. Being God conscious means that when we are struggling, we share those struggles with him in those very moments when we're hurting and in pain because we know that he is there with us in them and he can help us through them. Not later, not in the future when we can take some time to just go spend 10 minutes in prayer, but right then, as we are wrestling through it, as we are dealing with it in that moment, God is present with us to help us through it. So we can pray, we can share that struggle with him. God consciousness also means that when we are happy and something is going well, maybe something just worked out. Maybe we were running late to work and we get all green lights on our way so we're able to get there in time. It's like, that's a moment to stop and just thank God for, for that gift. As minor or as insignificant or as mundane as it might seem, God is with us as we are dealing with those things. And so we can thank him for those in the midst of it. I was just thinking about what it would be like to not do that, given the fact that God really is with us at all times. And it struck me that not doing so, not not just appreciating God and the gift he's given us right then and there in the moment, it's like opening a gift right in front of someone that's given it to you. So you're opening the gift right there in front of the giver of it, and you just say nothing to them in response. You just open it, you look at it, you just kind of stare blankly at it, and then just go about your day. There's no thank you, there's no show of appreciation that you have to them. You just move along like they aren't even there. Wouldn't that be rude? Wouldn't that be hurtful to the person? Like, I, I'm trying to imagine what that would be like if, if I just gave someone a gift and they opened it and there's just no response. That, that would hurt. You guys, when we go about our days not conscious of God's presence with us in them, then that's exactly what we're prone to do. We're prone to doing that with him. Treat prayer like the pulse of your Christian life. It's one of your spiritual vital signs, in a sense. Like your physical pulse, without prayer, you're dead. If you don't have a pulse, that means you're not living. We should think of prayer in the same sense. If we're not praying, our hearts are cold, they're dead. In contrast, a healthy Christian is one who has daily, ongoing conversations with God. That doesn't mean you're constantly talking to him, like just this constant verbal communication is going on in your head. That's not what I'm saying necessarily. But it does mean that we're interacting with him regularly, that we're aware that he is with us. 
that he is present and in sovereign control over our circumstances, even the most mundane moments of our lives, both the good and the bad ones. He wants to hear about both from us. Now, with that said, if you struggle to pray, examine your love for God. That's a good first place to start. A struggle to prayer or a struggle to pray usually indicates a lack of love. As you pray, as, you, as your love for him grows, so will your prayer life. It will not become a natural part of the rhythm of your day if you don't want to be with God. Think about it. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't plan on having to set aside a prayer time during your day. Don't leave here this morning thinking that I'm telling you that you don't need to schedule some like routine prayer time in your morning or in your evening, whenever you want to do it. That what I'm saying is that all you need is just to be thinking about God all the time. That's not what I'm saying. Schedule a regular prayer time for yourself. Develop that discipline. It's good. If Jesus himself was doing it, that's a pretty safe bet that that's a good practice for us to have too. Um, But what I am saying is that if that's the only time you're thinking about prayer or God, then you are missing the most important reason for prayer. It's for intimacy with him. It's so that we can get him And intimacy is not going to be achieved by giving God just maybe 10 to 15 minutes of your day at most. Would your marriage survive that way if you only gave your spouse 10 minutes in your morning and then you spent the rest of the day just doing your own thing, not interacting with them? Would your relationship with your kids deepen if you only gave them a couple minutes of attention during the day? Absolutely not those relationships would suffer incredibly. They would fall apart. So why do we so often think that that's sufficient for our own relationships with God? It's not. The rhythm of prayer that we should have in our lives is one of ongoing, intimate connection with him, the God who is always with us, who always wants to hear from us and commune with us. Treat him as your constant companion. But don't just make your prayers about your own life and your own circumstances, though. James does not focus here just on private prayer. In fact, he spends most of this passage talking about our prayers for others. That's his focus here, primarily. And we're going to look more at that in a little bit. But look with me at verses 14 through 16. Um, James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So again, notice how James has turned his attention away from praying for oneself to praying for others. Prayer should not only be focused on just our relationship with God. It should be outward focused as well. It should be for the sake and well-being of those around us. Our God consciousness should produce regular and ongoing prayer for the, the, the circumstances and care of others in, in, in addition to ourselves. 
But again, we'll, we'll get a lot more into that in the third point. But for now, we need to address some of the more confusing statements that James makes in our passage. We know that we should be praying, so we want to see how to do that properly. So that's what we're going to turn our attention to. We're going to look at what faith in prayer looks like. What does it mean to pray a prayer of faith like those verses that I just read mentioned? So the first clue we get is in verse 14. So it doesn't say just anyone should pray for the sick person. James directly calls the elders to be the ones praying to do it, at least at first. So why? What is special about the elders? The point is that the elders are usually at least at least should be, some of the most mature and wisest members of the congregation. They aren't special in the sense that their office makes their, their prayers intrinsically better. That isn't the argument that James is making. What he's saying is that the elders should pray first because they represent mature, godly Christian prayer. He wants them to set an example for the rest of the congregation to follow. So he wants them to be the ones to set the pace, to start it off. I mean, think about it. If he was trying to say that only the elders should be praying and that only their prayers are effective, he wouldn't follow that up almost immediately with verse 16, where he says that we should all be praying for one another. So again, he's not saying that only the elders should pray. He's saying, call the elders first. Help them show what God-centered mature, wise, humble prayer looks like in this situation for this sick person. And then everyone else, come alongside them and pray as well. So with that, we also get another clue in verse 14 about what the prayer of faith is when it says that the elders are to anoint the sick one with oil. So, I'll be honest, when I first sat down and was trying to reflect on this passage and think about, okay, how, how am I going to preach this? I read that passage, and it's like, I knew this was in there, but I was just stopping and thinking like, okay, what in the world does this mean? Why, why is James saying this? Um, and it's hard to say because James doesn't go into detail on why he's calling the elders to do this. Plus, we don't see this practice talked about very much in other New Testament passages. There's actually only two where we see this tied to any sort of healing. In Mark 6, verse 13, it says that the disciples drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. So we see it done there. Um, and we also know that the story of the Good in the story of the Good Samaritan, the injured man who he's treating has oil and wine poured on his wounds for healing. But nothing else is said about the practice. So what do we make of that? Well, it could have been meant, possibly, for medicinal purposes. Um, oil was used in ancient times as a treatment for injuries and certain ailments. Um, for instance, in the case of the Good Samaritan, like I was just describing, there was oil and wine used probably for medicinal purposes. The wine was probably used as an antiseptic on the wounds, and then oil was probably used to soothe the pain of them. So that could be what James is getting at. He could be saying that. When someone is sick, care for them spiritually and physically. And we would say that the rest of Scripture clearly 
teaches that and supports that idea too. When we are caring for others, we want to care for them both spiritually and physically. We want to acknowledge that we are all embodied souls, and we want to care for both aspects of our being. So we could be saying that, but what is more likely is the case that the anointing is meant to be symbolic. Remember that James is speaking to Jewish Christians in this letter. In Jewish culture, there was a long history of anointing people and things with oil to consecrate them to God. We see that done numerous times in the Old Testament ceremonial laws. The the anointing sets things apart for God's special attention and care. And that is probably what James means here. It was probably a symbolic act that the elders could do to show their desire for God to impart special care and attention to the sick person. It would also show that the sick person's life is ultimately in the hands of God. The elders, by doing this, are submitting the sick person to the will and plan of God. They are setting this person apart for God to do what he knows is best in that person's life. In that way, the anointing would have complemented what the prayer of faith is. And that brings us back to that question of what is the prayer of faith? Well, James actually gives us the best best picture of what he means back in chapter 1. So if you want, you can flip back a couple pages. Look back with me at James 1, verses 5 through 8. Um, And notice the similarities between our passage in James 5 and this James 1 passage. So he says this in verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's, du- he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So again, see the similarity in the language? He's talking about asking God in faith. It's the prayer of faith that he's talking about. And he contrasts that with doubting. Um, Which, if you think about it, makes sense. We usually think of faith in terms of belief, and the opposite of belief is doubt. But James is actually saying more here than just that. Notice that the person who doubts is called double-minded and unstable in all his ways in verse 8. So there's more wrapped up in that statement than just the idea of uncertainty in belief. And we know that by looking at how James uses the same word again in James 4. So turn your page again. Let's look at James 4, verses 7 and 8. So we get even further clarification of what he means in this passage. So look with me at James 4, verses 7 and 8. uh, James says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded So when James says someone is double-minded, he is referring to someone who's trying to serve two masters. And in this case in James 4, he's talking about someone who's trying to serve God and themselves. The point of those verses in chapter 4 is to call the person to commit himself wholly and, and completely to God 
because he's trying and failing to serve both God and himself. He has these sinful, earthly desires, and he's trying to satisfy those things while also trying to satisfy God. And James is saying, you can't do both. You're being double-minded. You can't serve two masters, so devote yourself to one. That's what being double-minded means. So with that in mind, do you see how that actually expands the meaning of faith and doubt back in James 1? When James speaks of doubt in contrast to faith, he isn't just talking about intellectual belief or the lack thereof. Faith isn't simply a matter of believing with certainty, and you're doubting if you are uncertain in some way. Doubt isn't simply a matter of lacking certainty. That, that is it in part, but that's not all of it. There's more to it than that. Faith and doubt, as James is talking about it, are matters of loyalty, of commitment as well. In fact, um, James, interestingly enough, uses the same Greek word that he uses in James 1, 6 for doubting. He uses that same word in James 2, verse 4, to describe the people in the church who were showing partiality to the rich. And he's using that term to show that their loyalty is divided between God and money. Um, So again, this idea of faith and doubt is a matter of more than just feeling sure of yourself. It's a matter of who are you committing and devoting yourself to? Who are you mastered and submitted to? So back to my point, being faithful means one trusts God and is committed to whatever God decides is best. It's a devotion to only to him and his plan. Doubting, on the other hand, means one distrusts God and is committed to something else besides him. Therefore, in James 1, verses 5 through 8, the prayer of faith is not simply a prayer with certainty that God will answer it. The prayer of faith is a prayer made from the heart of someone who ultimately wants to see God's will done, not their own. They're content with whatever God does, even if there is something other than what they're asking for. The person praying for faith knows that God is far wiser and more knowledgeable than they are. So he knows what's best, and they're trusting him with that. And again, that brings us back ultimately to James 5 and what the prayer of faith is. Through the years, many people have read James 5 verse 15 and thought that as long as they prayed with complete certainty in their request, then God was promising to answer them. That isn't what James is saying though. James is telling us that if we align our desires more and more with God's, we will see him answering our prayers more and more because we will want what he wants, a prayer of faith, meaning that what we want is ultimately whatever God wants, will be answered because the request is simply for God to do whatever he plans to do. That's what we want above all else. So do you see what, I, do you see what I'm saying there? I think a, a perfect example that demonstrates this is Jesus' own prayer in Gethsemane the night before he was killed. In Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus prayed a perfect prayer of faith, as every prayer of his was. He said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was saying to God, in other words, Father, if your will can be done without me needing to be crucified, then please relent and accomplish your will in another way. However, if that is your will, then please do it. You know best. That's basically what Jesus was saying. That's what he was praying. So now let me ask you this. Was Jesus' prayer of faith answered? Redeemer, we have to answer that with a yes. God did answer Jesus' prayer, even though I've heard numerous times when people say that that is his one unanswered prayer. And I guess I, I can see that in a sense because, yes, he was asking that that cup would pass from him, and it didn't. But it was answered because Jesus' ultimate desire was not simply to avoid crucifixion. Yes, he would have liked for that. But ultimately, what he wanted above all else was for the, the Father's will to be done. And that's exactly what took place. That is what happened. God answered that prayer. So like Jesus, when we pray for each other or for ourselves, we should make every request from a heart that humbly recognizes that we don't always know what is best. We should ask God to heal the sick because he can and does do that. But we should always ultimately want God's will to be done, even if that means someone isn't physically healed. That's the prayer of faith. It is a prayer made knowing that God can do great things, but it's also trusting that whatever he ends up doing, even if it's not what we think or want, it's what's best. And so we rejoice in that. If we pray that way, with that kind of disposition, every single one of our prayers will be answered, and many of them will actually lead to healing. And that brings me to my last point. We want to look at what James tells us about the power of prayer. How powerful and effective is it really? Now, this question is important to answer because I don't want you to be under the impression that prayer accomplishes nothing. I don't want you to hear everything that I just said and think that God doesn't actually hear our prayers, that he's just going to do what he's gonna do regardless of what we ask of him. We just need to kind of change our hearts to just accept his. That's not what I'm saying. Why pray if it doesn't have any effect on God's decisions? Well, the answer is that we do pray because it really does affect his decisions. James is clear about that in these verses. Our prayers will lead to God healing and saving others. They really are powerful and effective. One commentator, when he was talking about this passage, he quotes uh, John Chrysostom, the early church father, um, he was an incredibly eloquent preacher. And during a uh, sermon that he was preaching on prayer, Chrysostom said this, the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. There is 
in it an all-sufficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. That is what prayer is, because it is powerful and effective. All of those things that Chrysostom mentioned are things that we see in Scripture itself. He isn't just being imaginative with the examples he's coming up with. Prayer actually accomplished all of those things in history. We have it documented in Scripture. Some of the most miraculous acts in all of history happened only because someone prayed for them. Friends, we need others to pray for us, and we need to be praying for others. At times, God ordains for things to come to pass only because his saints pray for them. That is why our prayers matter. God's sovereignty doesn't diminish the value of our prayers. He didn't have to do it that way, but as verse, six, six, verse 16 says, God has designed the world so that the prayer of the righteous person has great power in his working. There have been things that have come to pass only because you prayed that they would. That is amazing. Isn't that exhilarating to thinking about? That God allows us to be the instruments of his work in this world. That his, our prayers mean something, that he allows them to. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve to have any effect on the world around us. God is the creator. He's the orchestrator of all things. We don't deserve that gift but he offers it to us as his children. So let's take that blessing up. Let's take up that privilege and honor. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the earth gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Some of the most remarkable miracles ever seen were things that Elijah did as a prophet. This is just one of the many examples of things that the Lord did through Elijah. But notice what the verse is saying. Notice what James takes a moment to highlight, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Do you get the significance of that? God didn't stop and start the rain purely because Elijah was a prophet. He did it because he was his child. He was his agent and instrument in creation. And if you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that's true of you too. You are, in a sense, just as qualified to be heard and answered by God as Elijah was. James is reminding us that extraordinary works, extraordinary prayers, God answers in all of his children, not just the prophets, not just certain individuals. God does extraordinary things through all of his children as we pray for them. Do you believe that? I'm afraid that we too often don't pray because we don't think that it matters or that it'll make any difference or even that God cares. But he does. He longs to answer the prayers of his children. Redeemer, 
if he loves you so much that he was willing to send his own son to die on a cross for you, to free you from your sins and guilt, why would he not want to hear from you? If he has adopted you as his child through Jesus Christ, why would he not long to hear your, just your thoughts and requests and, and everything from you? Parents, don't you want to hear those things from your kids? How much more does God want to do that of us? Jesus himself said, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Again, Redeemer, our Savior died to make us righteous before God because we could not do it ourselves. Put your hope in him, not yourself. And trust that the power of your prayer is in him, not yourself. Apart from him, you are enemies of God. But through our faith in him and his sacrifice, we are adopted into the family of God so that we could be the beloved recipients of God's good gifts and his ear, his attention, his focus. And again, we're not just recipients. We are also his instruments and agents in the world. He uses us to heal and to save. Look with me at the final two verses, verses 19 and 20. James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Why does James tack that on at the end of this passage on prayer? What's the connection? At first glance, it might not seem like they're necessarily super connected or related. But the point is that if we are praying with and for one another, as we were called to do back in verse 15, um, and 16, if we are confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another, because again, confession is a form of prayer, we will see brothers and sisters who were wandering from the truth come back to it. And we will see those who are lost be saved. We will play a part in God's salvation of others. We are agents of God's work to keep his children and help them persevere to the end. In this church, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. That's one of our statements in our statement of faith. We believe that God will ensure that his true children will persevere in the faith until the end. If we were just left to ourselves, we would fall away. No one would be saved without his changing our hearts and his keeping our hearts with him. No, but no one who will be saved will lose their salvation. He secures us. He guards us in the faith. And guess what? Part of the way that he does that is through the prayers and support of our fellow brothers and sisters. When you guys pray for me, he is using you to keep me steadfast in my faith. My faith would not be as stable or growing, almost certainly, if you were not praying for me. 
when you pray for me, he is using your prayers to convict me of sin and lead me to repentance so that I would obey rather than turn from God. I covet those prayers. I need those prayers. And you need them from each other as well. We all need to be praying for one another. God uses those prayers to save us. It's crazy to say it that way, that we would save people, but that's literally what James says. He says, let him know, he's talking to the one who helps bring back the wandering brother, let that person know that he will save that person's soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We are active in that. That's extraordinary. We save people through our prayers. Do you think that when you are praying for your fellow brothers and sisters? Do you think that when you are praying for the lost, for those in your life who don't know Jesus? Do you recognize the, the importance of your prayer that can, your prayers can be the one thing that is that last step in God's plan for that person to bring them to Christ, to transform their hearts, to miraculously bring them from death to life. Your prayer could be the one thing that, that changes that for that person. Think of it this way. A man is dying of a heart attack. He's unresponsive and there is no pulse. An EMT shows up and he uses an AED machine to restart the guy's heart and bring him back to life. So who or what saved this man's life? Did the EMT? Of course. Without him there, there's no way that the person would have been saved. The EMT needed to take a course of action to change that person's circumstances to jumpstart his heart to bring him back to life. The EMT has saved him. But what about the AED machine? Did that save the man's life as well? Yes, it did also. Because the EMT chose to use it, the man would not have been revived without it. Well, God is the EMT, in a sense, and we are that AED machine. Yes, God is the one who saves. He is the sovereign controller of all things. No one can be saved without God transforming our hearts. Salvation is impossible apart from the work of God. But God has chosen to work through the prayers of his children as well. He wants to use your prayers to save those in your life. That is how powerful our prayers are. You can help save the lost and strengthen the saved when you pray for them. Friends, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it is a foreign concept in the Bible to think that one can persevere in the faith until the end without the prayers and fellowship of the church. That idea that you don't need those things is an American one based more on values of self-autonomy than on actual biblical teaching. And speaking from experience, I, I have yet to meet a godly, healthy Christian who is not also involved and invested in their community of faith. I haven't met someone that, wasn't, that was healthy, that wasn't connected 
to a community of faith that was praying and living life with other Christians. I haven't met one. So let's be invested with one another, and not just in the things that we do, but our prayers for one another, both individually and privately and corporately. This gets to the heart and beauty of prayer. It is a reminder that we were all once wanderers, and we are still prone to doing that. God will not let his children wander away for good, though. He uses our prayers to keep us. And that shouldn't surprise us. Again, why would Christ go through the trouble of dying for us if he wasn't also going to guard us in the faith also? He loves us too much to leave us to the whims of our wayward hearts. Um, I love, it's, I would say that it's probably my favorite hymn, um, Come Thou Fount. And I think one of the, the verses speaks well to this, this idea that... Um, that I'm talking about. It says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. You guys, let's rejoice in that. We were wandering away from sin. We, I mean, we were wandering away from God into sin. But he has rescued us by his blood. And even more, he keeps us by the prayers of our brothers and sisters. Let's pray, therefore, for your prayers of faith will heal and save. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, God, we pray for that now. We pray for, I just want to pray now, Father, for all of the needs of every single person that is here this morning. God, whether that is sickness physical sickness, whether that is spiritual sickness, whether that is spiritual death, God, whether we are struggling, whether we are in joy and cheerfulness, God, if we are um, in doubt, if we are battling sin and temptation, God, wherever each of our hearts are this morning, Lord, Strengthen us. God, keep us by your spirit in faith. God, help us to trust that you know what is best for us. And let us just seek to walk in obedience in whatever our circumstances are. God, thank you for the joy and privilege that you have given us in prayer. We don't deserve to be talking to you right now. We just deserve your wrath. But you have given us your love. You have given us your, yeah, just your affection and your delight. God, thank you for that. Help us to be a church that prayers diligently and passionately for one another. And doing so knowing that you are a God who loves. And we do that all and we have confidence in that truth because of your son, in whose name I pray, amen.